Hello, and welcome to 10 Blocks, the podcast of City Journal. This is Seth Barron, your host for today. I'm the associate editor at City Journal, and I'm joined by Nicole Gelinas, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor at City Journal. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Seth. Uh, We're going to talk today, uh, following up on our podcast of two weeks ago, uh, about the situation in New York City as we enter our, what, second, third week of of pause or lockdown uh, and try to figure out where we're headed. Uh, What's your take on things, Nicole? Well, my take is that we have settled down into this lockdown for the most part. It was extended both at the state and the federal level last week, really until the end of April. So we are certainly not done with this. I think the hope would be that at least soon we would see the endpoint of the lockdown and hopefully reach the peak of infections, the peak of hospitalizations, and see these numbers start to come down a bit gradually over the next few weeks, just as we've hopefully seen happen in northern Italy, and then start to think about how does the city get back to something resembling uh, normal, but obviously still a a very acute emergency situation with almost 11,000 people hospitalized in New York State. That's up 15% from yesterday, over 2,700 people in intensive care, and unfortunately, uh, continuing increase in, in the death toll. The death toll has tripled over four days in New York State, mostly in in New York City. So a great human toll here. And for those enough uh, fortunate enough to, to have escaped the human toll so far, a big change in our uh, our day-to-day lives. How about yourself, Seth? Well, yeah. I mean, look, things are definitely looking pretty grim uh, for New York City and state. At the same time, you know, and I, now I don't want to sound Pollyanna about this, Um, there are mathematically some indications that we may be close to turning a corner on the spread of new infections. Now, this kind of makes sense. If we've been in virtual lockdown for a couple of weeks now, now I'm not saying it's been perfect, at least in Manhattan, it seems to be pretty effective. I mean, it makes sense that the number of transmissions, new infections would be radically suppressed. Um, Right. It would seem that at this point with restaurants closed, bars closed, very little foot traffic out there, even not as many people in the park. Of course, it hasn't been as nice and as warm out as it was last week. So one would think the method of transmission now would be among family members who really can't quarantine themselves from each other in small apartments and possibly still an issue on the subways where even though subway ridership is down by 90% because the MTA has cut service and in turn they've cut service because there are so many crew members who were out sick. We've unfortunately had seven subway workers die of coronavirus in just the past five days. So we still have uh, some crowded trains out there of people trying to get to work in grocery stores as home health aides, as uh, central and, um, you know, iatrogenic uh, transmission, like in the hospitals. Right. Like yep. Doctors, nurses, 
other healthcare workers getting it too. But if you look at, um, here's this information that the Department of Health put out, the New York City Emergency Department surveillance data. And if you, it, it has a chart, influenza-like illness and pneumonia ER department visits by age group. And it breaks it down since the beginning of the year. Uh, and yes, of course, starting around uh, the 1st of March, there's a huge uptick. But then the last few days, there has been a drop off. So that's new people coming to the hospital, coming to the ER with a flu-like or a respiratory emergency. It has started to decline. And yes, statewide hospitalizations are up. But if you look at just the city, it does seem as though new hospitalizations, while they're still occurring, the rate is not accelerating. Good. Um, well, hopefully that, that will be a, a trend and maybe we'll see that continue. Like, I mean, just to, you know, um, bring up the numbers, yesterday at, well, sorry, Monday at 4.30 p.m., uh, the Department of Health reported 77 7,741 ever hospitalized cases. And the day before, Sunday night, they'd reported, I think, about 7,400. So that indicates that three or 400 new hospitalizations occurred, which is still a lot of people, but it's lower than what it had been. So we may have reached an inflection point, not to say that we aren't still having more cases and more people getting sick, but it's slowing down, perhaps. Now, at the same time, it, it does seem as though at this point we could expect deaths to increase because we're seeing people who got sick, say, three weeks ago before the lockdown. Now they're reaching the end stage of their disease, like you know, people who are vulnerable, older, people with serious health issues. And so we're going to see a lot of people dying this week. And it's, 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 it's a horrible... It's a horrible situation. It's a terrible tragedy. Um, you know, things are going to be bad the next week or two, but one hopes that we are, um, that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and that, that, that we will emerge from this if we can maintain the lockdown. Do you get the sense that um, social distancing is being observed? I think so. There were some problems yesterday when too many people went out to see the hospital ship docking over on the west side and there were some pictures of people obviously not standing six feet away from each other but other than that the streets are certainly very quiet and if you do happen to you know take a short walk around midtown here everybody seems to be observing you know not to follow too quickly behind people not to creep up on them they seem to be uh uh observing the six foot rule and another thing is more and more people are are wearing masks. I mean, it sounds kind of funny, but just as a sort of like amusing vignette of day-to-day -day life, like our superintendent of our building coming to work, essential employee, and he just, he made a mask out of just a couple old t-shirts and he's been wearing it. And so, you know, with the changing CDC instructions on this, I think we'll see more and more of the people who are venturing out on the street wearing some kind of facial protection. As you wrote the other day, I mean, even imperfect uh, protection is better than nothing. And a lot of people with time on their hands 
going on the internet, learning base, very basic sewing techniques and rudimentary mass making to get you around for a few days. How are things down in the village? Are there fewer well, people, more people? Yeah, I mean, it's dead. It's totally yeah. dead. Um, I mean, it's very peaceful. You can hear the birds singing and, you know, at the same time, it's a little, um, it's a, it's a little creepy, yeah. um, a little eerie. Yeah. One of the things I've observed both in going down into the Columbus Circle subway station last Thursday and just walking around every couple days is the, the lack of foot traffic. It makes the people who are mentally ill and homeless out on the street, understandably, even more disturbed and confused. And there's there there are uh, fewer people out on the street. It seems like people who might ha- stay in a homeless shelter at night, they're not even bothering to go out and try to sit on the sidewalk and ask for money just because there's just no no office foot traffic, no tourist foot traffic. But the people who are still out there, those are the ones that really just have no uh, mental or physical resources. And so, and the same thing on the subway, uh, people lying uh, on the platform and there's been some videos of people obviously without any resources lying on the subway trains. And so I think that's something city really needs to be thinking about is people who obviously cannot care for themselves are, are left out there in essentially an abandoned city. Well, it's hard to know what exact, what kind of resources the city can employ to, I mean, a lot of social distancing is based on peer pressure and civic mindedness. So how do you convince people who, you know, may be mentally disturbed or just extremely antisocial to begin with to observe um, a quarantine, a voluntary isolation? regime. Um, And, you know, the city has been cracking down on cases of just regular people who aren't observing social isolation. Like, you know, I don't know if you saw, but they went and removed all the basketball hoops from the basketball Mm. courts because people were going out and playing basketball. And as the weather turns warmer in April, I think we're it's you know going to be harder and harder to keep people staying inside when it's a beautiful spring day. But then at the same time, like for instance, a friend of mine was walk was in central Brooklyn the other day. He said people were not observing social isolation at all. Like there were groups of people hanging out, people talking. Um, so what do you do? I mean, the NYPD can issue fines, but clearly they're not going to be arresting people for, you know, being out on the street. Right. And if you issue a fine, their police are not going to be issuing a fine from six feet away from the person. So you're just introducing more problems. I mean, if that were to continue, I think the city would have to say, okay, you pretty much can't leave your house, uh, you close the parks down. Uh, but yes, it is, it's sort of the honor system at the moment and seems to be working here in, in Midtown, but perhaps not in, in other parts of the city. I mean, I saw that the city got, uh, Cardi B, the singer to, they had all these, um, YouTube videos of her encouraging people in English and Spanish to go and participate in the census. Mm -hmm. Um, now that's great, but I mean, it seems what they really need is someone like Cardi B or 
other you know celebrities to be telling people stay inside. Uh, this is really important at this moment. Yeah, and speaking of the census, I mean, it, I I don't have any data on this, but anecdotally. Many people who live or lived in this building have left. I've seen probably four or five moving trucks out there. None today, but there was one yesterday. There was two over the weekend. People seem to have just packed up all their stuff from this 70-unit apartment building and and uh, left seemingly for good. I wonder how that will affect the census and where will those people report that they are living? In other words, some people have said, well, okay, you can still do your census online, but if they are reporting that they're not living in New York City anymore, that's going to have a big impact on the census, even if they decide, okay, in six months, we're going to come back and live in New York City again. Same thing with at least thousands, probably tens of thousands of people who have taken flights to Florida, who have gone out to Long Island, who have gone to stay with relatives in a less dense part of the country. Where are those people going to report that they're living if they report anything at all? So one wonders if we will have to delay the census just to get an accurate count, whether the count is down or up. But with everything in flux, it's kind of like trying to take the census when people are fleeing a burning building. Right. It's a good point. I mean, 10 years ago at this, when they did the census, people were very upset and said the New York City was getting undercounted. And I know this time they've really been um, putting a lot, they put city money into hiring census counters. But, you know, if there's a pandemic, you can't very well go door to door and hope to get an accurate count. Uh, it seems like some kind of delay on the census might make sense. But this kind of raises a larger question, which is, well, you know, where is the population of Manhattan and New York City going? And we've already lost people in the last couple of years. Uh, right. Do you think that we're going to see a, um, I mean, I don't know if we're going to see a mass exodus, but with jobs cratering and rents still very high, do you do you expect um, people, maybe maybe young professional types who've moved here in the last three to five years, they don't really have a lot of roots here necessarily, uh, but you know they make they they've historically you know they they make a fair amount of money. Are they going to decamp? I think it's a real risk, and I think the city government and state government need to keep in mind as we go through what is most likely billions of dollars, if not tens of billions of dollars in budget cuts, you cannot cut the things that keep your taxpayers here. Um, like, and also, we've, we're already seeing over the past few years with the decrease in federal taxes, and you can no longer deduct as much of your state and local taxes from your federal taxes if you make over a certain amount. People with second homes, you know, if you've got a second home in Florida, Arizona, South Carolina, basically all those people right now are at their second home. And so is there a risk that a lot of those people just won't come back, especially with if arts institutions are slow to reopen and come back, I mean, that's a big amenity keeping people with a little bit of money to spend here. Is, are, is policing going to be weaker? Are basic public services, you know, if you have kids in the school system, are classes going to be overcrowded in a couple of years? Like, I think we have to keep in mind, this is a real tipping point that if you've already fled and you're staying somewhere else, 
we really need to give people a good reason to come back and stay back. And so it's not, it's not that like the city, I mean, they're obviously going to make a lot of mistakes, but we just don't have a lot of room for error here. So you mentioned that you're, you know, we're going to have billions, possibly tens of billions of dollars in cuts. You sent me some uh, budget information the other day, and I was trying to get a grasp of it. Where are city revenues headed and what what are the budgetary implications going to be? I mean, they're working on the, the next year's budget now. Yep, uh, the mayor put out his uh, his budget. I guess uh, close to six weeks ago. So, if you look at how much money the city government spends, and this is this does not include state and federal money, just out of city tax revenues. When De Blasio came into office, the city spent about fifty two billion dollars in. Uh, you know, city tax revenues, city fee revenues, and so forth. That was the last budget that the Bloomberg administration put together. Uh, this year, the the year that is supposed to start on July first, the city would be spending about seventy one billion dollars. So we're we're close to a twenty billion dollar increase just in city funded spending over the past seven years. That's a it's a big, big increase. Hmm. So the good news is that there should be a lot of new stuff that we can that we can cut back. You know, things like a lot of civilians hired for various uniformed agencies, a lot of like uh, an environment where we could start a lot of new initiatives that may not be really critical right now. I mean, out of like a 300,000 strong workforce seven years ago, we now have 330,000 people. Now, a lot of those are pre-K teachers. It's highly unlikely and probably not desirable for us to cancel the pre-K program. But they're in hiring, like, for example, thousands of administrators at the Department of Education. Do we really need all of this office staff? Not that you want anyone else to be laid off in this environment, but in in terms of the fact that the mayor increased spending so much, there's a lot of easier stuff to cut there before we get to like basic policing and fire and in class size. So what kind of cuts do you think are actually on the table? I mean, has, has this come up? Have, has the council addressed this stuff? I think not so far, no. And I don't you'd blame the council speaker for not putting anything together uh, quite yet. I mean, I know that they're in the middle of an acute emergency. They're trying to get food to fit food pantries and everything else. But I think as we get closer to July, for example, should we have a pay freeze? Public uh, sector wages right now are about thirty billion. They're supposed to go up to closer to thirty-three billion a year over the next five years. Do, are we going to have to just freeze public sector wages? I think that's really something to think about uh, because that means you can avoid some layoffs. So I, I think that's one of the things. And then I think you know, just like we talked about last week. Uh, the capital budget. I mean, we have to really look and see which of these projects like Mm. Rikers Island uh, can be delayed, if not made significantly uh, smaller in, in scope. So speaking of Rikers Island right now, there's um, I mean, Rikers Island appears to be in a utter crisis mode, like true meltdown because um, coronavirus is spreading rapidly Mm -hmm. uh, among the, 
the uh, detainees there, uh, many of whom are, you know, kept essentially in dormitory style, uh, you know, accommodations, if you want to put it, with like 40, 40 people in a room. Uh, obviously, it's very hard to do social distancing in jail. Uh, so now the city is, I guess they just released another 400 people. They're trying to figure out who they can let out. But the 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 five district attorneys wrote a stern letter saying, you know, you're letting people out kind of um, very haphazardly. And it seems like there's some dangerous characters uh, just getting turned loose. Um, you know, in a way, this seems like a perverse uh, dream come true for the, the uh, defense bar who's been clamoring for decarceration for a long time. What's the upshot of all of this? Yeah, I mean, the, the city's jail population is now below 5,000 for the first time since after World War II. I mean, we're not even talking about, you know, the height of incarceration in, in 1990 anymore where, when we had 22,000 people in jail. We're talking an era where we had a very, very low crime. Uh, and the city did release someone last week who was accused of viciously murdering his girlfriend. He allegedly has a pattern of abuse toward women. Now, this is also an issue of the guy has been sitting there with no trial for almost two years in what mm. seems like a pretty straightforward case at a murder that basically occurred in public. And so I think this really concentrates a lot of the problems that have been chronic throughout the criminal justice system, you know, why do people sit for years with no trial? Why, why are the DAs so slow to prosecute these cases and get people off Rikers, get them into prison if they're convicted and if they're acquitted, uh, let them uh, go out on their way to, to freedom. Another person who, who was, uh, an, uh, uh, the, he's the prime suspect now in setting the fire on the subway that killed a subway motorman, Garrett Goble, 36-year-old subway motorman last week. The suspect in this case was already arrested twice this, this month for uh, property damage and criminal mischief, and he was uh, allowed to go without uh, bail. And so that exacerbated uh, the tragic week that the transit workers were having already. Uh, death had nothing to do, really, with coronavirus that should have been prevented. Now, should we have jails where people are are packed in like this, where the jails and the guards and the other corrections workers are at grave risk? This just goes to the fact that the city has gotten away with dilapidated jail buildings on Rikers Island for decades, you know, trailers that were never meant to be for permanent use, uh, aging infrastructure. And instead of fixing up Rikers Island and building better jail buildings and doing this gradually, they've kind of like continued this fantasy that we can build four, four jails and four separate boroughs. We need to build humane jails, even just from the public health perspective. But let's get serious about actually doing this on Rikers Island and get something modest but actually doable so that we can see some some results in the next few months and next couple of years. I mean, if we can build emergency hospitals that conform to hospital standards in just a couple of weeks, we should be able to build a semblance of better jails and then build on that for the long term. 
So, um, you know, on another topic, and, you know, everybody's been kind of ganging up on Mayor de Blasio and uh, giving uh, Governor Cuomo a lot of praise, you know, perhaps both of these polls are somewhat um, undeserved or unmerited. Uh, what's your opinion of the city's response, preparedness, uh, and every and, and the states uh, regarding the outbreak? Well, the city was obviously not prepared in some basic ways. I mean, it's clear we should have had much better stockpiles of masks. I mean, masks, like, as you say, this is not ventilators. Like, why not have millions of masks in a warehouse somewhere? Uh, they're, they're doing better on sourcing these things right now. But, yeah, I think there was some real lack of preparedness uh on, on the sort of basic cheaper supply uh, issue there. And the mayor, you know, like, like our colleague Alex Armlovich wrote this week in the Daily News, even basic things that don't cost a lot of money and aren't that difficult to do, like just closing off some of the avenues in New York City so that people can walk in the middle of the street and not have to be near other people, they've been really, like, uh miserly in doing that. I mean, in Manhattan, we just have a couple blocks of Park Avenue. Like, the mayor could be doing a lot more on that front uh, just to keep all the people who are sort of locked down, give them a better exercise option. And then, like, just stupid stuff. Like, he went out to Brooklyn to walk in the park over the weekend. I mean, police officers have to drive him to Brooklyn from Gracie Mansion one in 30 police officers has tested positive for the virus. So that seems like a non-essential trip that should have been uh, avoided. And I would ask you the same question. I mean, what do you think of the leadership? And also going forward, we have a mayoral election in a little bit more than a year. And what should we be looking for or thinking about in our mayoral candidates? Well, regarding preparedness, you know, I have a piece, um, coming out in City Journal, or should be out by the time this podcast is up, um, looking at this question, because, you know, ever since Hurricane Sandy, the city and the state have been very keen on the question of preparedness, like civilian preparedness. Um, And they've encouraged everyone to assemble a go bag, like kind of a bug out kit. Um, And they say, you know, put perishable, you know, put uh, water in there and you know, granola bars and get your medication and the first aid kit. And among the items that they encourage people to get are face masks and hand sanitizer. Now, I mean, I think that's great that the city, you know, is essentially encouraging this prepper mindset. But at the same time, like, yeah, like you said, it kind of seems like it would have been a no-brainer for for New York City to stockpile masks and hand sanitizer at least enough to get it through the first week or two of a major crisis. Uh, But we've seen de Blasio on TV, you know, literally calling for the nationalization of American industry to produce more hand sanitizer. It seems like he could have maybe done a better job, given the, the tens of billions of dollars he spent on all kinds of initiatives and, you know, his whole obsession with climate change and the climate emergency and resiliency. But then to drop the ball on something that's, I mean, honestly, getting getting a stockpile of, 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 of masks and hand sanitizer, that's a municipal function. That's, that's not really a federal function. Sure, if there's a major emergency, you need help. But uh, 
I was just going to say, and you know, maybe this is just hindsight, because I guess I wasn't saying this either a month ago, sure, but sure. When, uh, when the federal government was still allowing global flights to come in, and they said, if you're coming, you know, if you're an American, you're coming first from China, then from Italy, then basically from anywhere, you should quarantine yourself for two weeks once you get home. Well, no one thought about how are these people going to get home from the airport? I mean, a lot of them ordered Ubers and Lyfts to get them home. So you have the Uber, Lyft driver, no protection. I mean, Uber, like a lot of entities, has kind of gotten wise to this over the past few days. So they're trying to provide supplies, but of course, very slow, and they're now competing for a scarce resource. But you have a public health risk to the Uber driver who then sees many other customers throughout the course of the day with, you know, no partition, no mask, no gloves. Uh, so that's kind of like you're sharing a ride. You're not, I mean, sharing in the sense that you're in the car with another right, right. human being that you could have the virus or the driver could have the virus. And so there's potential for, for community spread there, you know, still not something that they have, uh, resolved in this. I mean, the bus passengers now are getting on in the back of the bus, but you really don't have that option with a, a Uber and Lyft uh, ride. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing how many how many weak links there are in our whole system, and how just how poor, impoverished our response was at the beginning. I, I don't want to like totally bury de Blasio over this, although he certainly made some major gaffes in the last few weeks. Uh, and, you know, the, the masks and so forth, I think, you know, does fall on him. But, you know, clearly this is a systemic issue. Um, Nicole, it's been wonderful talking to you. I think we've, uh, you and I have hashed out a lot, and I hope our, um, our listeners found it valuable. If you uh, like what you heard, why not uh, go and leave a positive review, five stars, on iTunes? Uh, you can check us out on Twitter at City Journal. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in, and you'll hear from us next week. Nicole, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Seth, and likewise. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.